Welcome everybody to the Brian Pierre Grossi podcast. That's me. Really happy to have Jeff Carrera with us today from Portugal. Exciting to across the pond, as they say. Welcome, Jeff. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on. And I was saying it's I find it easier if people can just sort of introduce themselves lately and just share who they are and, and however they want to <laughs> introduce sure. themselves to their audience. Yeah, so go ahead and tell us who you are. Well, I, I mean, I'll just say a little bit. I, uh, I'll give you a very brief. Sure, uh, brief is fine. You know, I was, I was a very normal kind of uh, uh, guy. I became an engineer uh, basically because my father said it was a good idea. Uh, even though my aspiration since I was young was to be an artist, but that didn't seem practical. Became an engineer, got married, bought a white house with a white picket fence, literally, and a two-car garage uh, abutting a park. And uh, at some point got disillusioned with the world that I was in of engineering, uh, went back to school, studied education, started working in uh, group homes for adjudicated youth because I felt like I was giving back. Uh, but at some point, I started to realize that all the work that I was doing with the with youth and, and incarcerated, I realized the problems were much bigger than what you could solve. You know, at that point, you were so far down the end of the road uh, that it was very difficult to make any headway at all. And most kids kind of went in and out of juvie prisons until they went in and out of prisons. Um, and so I was getting disillusioned with that work in the sense of of it being a huge help to the world. And then I, uh, I was always interested in meditation. I was always interested in, in cognitive psychology. Uh, I banged into a spiritual community. I had a huge opening uh, almost immediately. I left everything, my career, my marriage at the time, the house. And I, I spent 20 years living in a, a kind of postmodern ashram. Uh, in Massachusetts, uh, and had, you know, had the opportunity to do as much spiritual practice as you could possibly want. Uh, and, uh, and because of that, over all those years, I had, I had incredible experiences beyond the normal, uh, and of all different kinds, uh, including uh, Kundalini energetic awakenings and non-dual realizations and constant consciousness that stayed with me for days on end. Uh, you know, when you're doing enough practice in, a, in, a, in an intense enough environment, you have a lot of powerful experiences. So once that community uh, ended, came to an end, uh, I'd been in it for 20 years and I had become a very prominent member of it. And it was a natural thing for me to start teaching meditation and awakening and spiritual philosophy, uh, what I sometimes prefer to think of as paradigm shifting philosophy. And that was eight years ago. And, and over that time, I've been teaching online. I've been developing an online uh, membership and a community. Uh, I've taught retreats in various places all over the world. Uh, and I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm intending to continue to share the fruits of everything I've discovered until 
I'm not on the planet anymore and I'm having a great time doing it. And for people um, who may not know what awakening is, or maybe there's different, a lot of different turn out, terminology these days that this work can mean different things, different people, um, you know, awakening, enlightenment, self-realization. Um, what exactly, I know it's one of those things that like, you can't really put it in words, but to attempt once again, <laughs> how would you put it into, how would you put it into words? Oh, I think you went mute. Uh, you went mute, Jeff. I'm not mute anymore. There we go. Yeah. Okay. The, the, you know, I would say awakening is initiated when someone realizes there's more. I think it's a very simple recognition. Uh, you know, you've, you've been enculturated into a certain idea about what it, what it means to be a person, what it means to be a good person, what it means to be fulfilled, what it means to be happy, what it means to be successful is all of what it means to be. And at some point, you, you, you realize, oh, my God, this is, there's got to be more than this. You know? And that experience can come in one of two flavors. It either comes through sort of the via negativa, you might say, uh, which means it comes through some kind of tragedy. And lots of, lots of people have experienced that. People like Eckhart Tolle, uh, you know, who you, you know, ended up kind of at the rock bottom and then had a realization of more. And it can come in, a, in the more visa, via positiva way, which is one just has an experience of more. You know, they didn't, they didn't go to the bottom, but they, they were blessed with an experience that then they thought, well, if that's true, then everything else is not really it. Uh, so that's the beginning. And then one pursues the path, one gets excited, one starts to do practice. And I think eventually what, what we come to realize is that uh, at least the way that I look at it, is that, that who we really are, the source of our, our consciousness, you know, the, the, the part of me that's now looking at you, is not Jeff. Uh, it's, not, it's not an entity entirely limited to this physical body, although this is a very real part of who I am. Uh, but that, that consciousness is coming from the universe itself or from reality itself. This is the consciousness that everything in the universe is animated by the same life force. And ultimately, when you go deep inside, you realize that you are that, you know, as the, the, they say in the great Eastern traditions, that you are a reflection of the animating force of the universe in action, in this embodied form. Uh, and if that realization is deep enough, then one feels completely compelled to live as that. And, and I would say uh, enlightenment is the ongoing process of living more and more and more as that, as, as that, that universal consciousness uh, that we are. And that changes everything about how you want to live, about what's possible. Uh, and so in a nutshell, that's how I would define it. And how does that, how does that change everything? How have you found that changes everything for yourself or other people that you're no longer aware of? Sure. Well, I mean, I guess uh, it's such a miracle, that realization, you know, the, you know, cause it's one thing to, to have an understanding that you are that. Uh, it's a very different thing 
to feel that feel yourself shift into that energy and feel yourself flowing through a human form and feel yourself being everywhere and looking in any set of eyes or in any living creature or anything and seeing yourself reflected back and recognizing that you are everywhere that you the energy that animates life is everywhere so it's such it's such a powerful realization and it, it leads to all kinds of secondary you know realizations like awakening of energies and it can be very different for for different people uh, but all of these things are so far out of any box you ever had culturally yeah <laughs> it's, it's just so far beyond anything ever anyone ever explained to you was possible and even if you've been reading the spiritual literature and and you've understood it all the actual experience of it is still so far out of the box of anything that anyone ever said about it or if you become someone like me who's talking about it all the time anything i've ever said about it is so far from the actuality of it that that when that happens really all you see is we are one this is one and if that's the case life can be so different than it is especially human life human life is so uh mired in isolation and separation and fear and um self-protection and competition and consumerism all of those things uh, which are a natural outcome to not recognizing that that you and i are one that is, there's no actual competition here. But if if you if you if you thrive, I thrive, literally, because you are me. Uh, and you and so you just go. This I need. I don't know what I need to do, but somehow I need to be a light for this. I need to shed light on this in the world. I, I think that's a good way to understand what the whole idea of enlightenment would be. Is those people who who wake up powerfully. Uh, what they want to do is shed a light on what's possible for all of us, you know, because there's nothing, there's nothing special about it. It's literally the most common thing there is because it's common to every, every living and non-living entity in the universe. So, so that's energetically how it changes is you, your life becomes devoted to this. And then how exactly that's going to manifest will be very different for different people. Some, some people like me decide they want to teach meditation and write books. And, but that's not, that's not the only way it should manifest. It's not the best way it should manifest. I was a teacher before I had experiences like that. So it's sort of natural that I would pick up that thread, you know, on the other side. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, <clears throat> there's lots of examples of people who are bringing you know, I call people who are wanting to illuminate the world in this way, artists of possibility. So they're all people who are bringing new possibilities to light. Mm -hmm. And I, I work with people who, who are artists in the, in, the, in the visual art sense, and they're taking their vision and putting it on canvas or putting it in dance or putting it in music. I work with people who are entrepreneurs and they're taking their vision and their sense of what's possible and they're putting it into a business venture that's, that's very different. Uh, I work with people who are uh, medical in the medical profession uh, or the holistic health profession who are wanting to bring in 
what they see as possible into the world. So it can manifest in many different ways. Um, but in some form or another, representing that in the world becomes primary to a person. Yeah, it, it feels like uh, the, the true essence of love uh, is what comes through with this mm -hmm. and the true essence of freedom. And I feel like there's so many people, there's so much talk about freedom these days. There's so much talk about love and caring people these days. And, and what you're pointing at is the awakening of that true essence of this absolute true love and absolute true uh, freedom. And related to that is it, there, I think there's this perception that spiritual people are kind of like, they're, they're somehow distancing themselves from the world. They don't, they're not making a real positive, you know, engagement in the world in some way, which is a question, you know, inquiry I'm, I'm interested in. And, but it feels like this is what actually makes the greatest change in the world that people don't often realize that. I think that's, that's often true. And, and you know, there, there is a, there is an, an, a stereotyped image of a kind of totally detached. The, the, the navel gazer. <clears throat> yes, navel gazer. And I'm not saying that, that <laughs> there isn't good reason for that. Uh, but the fact is I've met a number of people that I would consider to be awakened or enlightened to some degree, you know, uh, and none of them were navel gazers. These were people who were founding hospitals, starting orphanages, making funds. They had hundreds of various organizational activities that they were run. These were not people who were sitting around doing nothing. These were people who cared so much and were able to inspire an enormous amount of care in the people around them so that they could end up getting, uh, you know, there's, there's very few motivating forces that I know of like, like enlightenment, like love, like you said, it's love. It's, it's the, the highest, biggest form of love. love is an incredibly powerful motivator. Now, hate is a powerful motivator. Fear is a powerful motivator. Greed is a powerful, you know, there are other powerful motivators, mm -hmm. you know, but I've never, you know, the people that I've seen who have been the most lit up by love are the most powerful people I've seen. I, I've never seen someone whose power of greed could match the power of love at its highest level. So my belief is that in the end, love is the most powerful force in the universe. Well, let's explore the motivation part because that's, that's really interesting. So I think if I look at my progression in my life and other people's progressions that I've seen as well, there's, there's initially there's this motivation that comes from ego. Like I want more money. I want, maybe I want more women or I want more, whatever it is. I want, I want more material things. I want more status. I want all these things I want. And there's a lot of motivation, you know, you really want to, and there's this idea that if you get to this other place, I think this is kind of what you're describing in your journey. If you get to this other place, you're going to be happier. You know, this, right. you're going to get to this, some other thing and it's all, it's all going to be okay. And then it never really works out that way. So you keep trying to go to the next thing and the next thing. Um, and then there's this, this uh, realization, this awakening experience that happens and you go into the space. And then there's this space 
that um, it's hard to put into words, but there's this kind of realization that nothing really needs to be done. Everything is, everything's perfect. You know, everything is, mm-hmm. um, and I've been in that space sometimes where there's not really any motivation, mm-hmm. um, which feels, it's not, it's not unhappy, there's not, but this, this somehow feels like it's incomplete. Like it's not really fully what it's all about. And then there's a space where I, there is this inspiration that kicks in, which is what you're talking about, which is it's, it's not from ego now. It's from mm-hmm. almost like a higher source, right? It's like this, right. this higher level of inspiration. I'd love if you could just talk about that, if you've seen that in people and that kind of spot in people. Sure. I mean, I, I see it in myself. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, and I, I have come to believe that, you know, this, this universal process is perfect uh so which means that if i'm feeling called to not do anything i assume there's a reason for that <laughs> i don't assume that that you know the universe made a mistake and they forgot that i was here i assume that that i that something needs to happen that can only happen in silence or that can only happen through non-doing and so far every time i've had a period of of much less activity which it seems to happen occasionally. It's followed by another spike of inspiration. <laughs> so I don't know, maybe there's going to be one time where I, I end up in a, in a heap in front of a television and never move. But so far, these have been uh, fairly brief periods punctuating mostly activity, uh, in my case. And, uh, and I see that in the people I work with sometimes. And I, I feel like I get a better and better sense that it's not always the time to grow. It's not always the time to do things. It's not, you know, it's like everything else in, you know, makes sense. Everything else in nature is like that. You know, plants don't just grow, 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 grow indefinitely. They, there's natural ebbs and flows to everything. Our breathing is an, an ebb and flow. And, and if we look at our life, we'll see there's ebbs and flows. There's, there's tremendous outputs of activity. And then there's times of inner reflection and just deepening. Uh, and they seem to come fairly regularly. And it's all, you know, I think <clears throat> we're trained in our culture uh, to, to basically create a model of how you should be and then force yourself to be that way. And the model tends to be very active, especially if you're in the American culture uh, in, in the way that, that you and I are, at least. So it, it tends to be that you should be busy, you should be producing, you should be succeeding, you should be achieving. And that's very deep conditioning. Uh, it, it goes exactly, it doesn't go in the opposite direction of the spiritual motive. It's just only partially aligned. You know, I think there are times in the spiritual, in a pure spiritual motivation where this forward movement, energetic kind of eros energy is what's called for, but this at least an equal amount of time. And I think in our culture, probably more time in which we're called to relax and let go. Uh, and we have very little, I mean, this is one thing that I'm realizing is I almost want to change everything I teach to just relax because the, the, as time goes on, I see, Oh, nobody knows how to relax, you know, and our, our, our society has no real cultural value for relaxing. You know, 
there's a cultural value for being in, on vacation. But then I see people on vacation. I think, oh, my God, they're like busier on vacation than they were when they were working. You know, they're trying to get every possible vacation experience in they can in the time they have, you know, to, to not be working. And they're done with their vacation. They're exhausted going back to work. And, you know, we don't know how to stop. We don't know how to let go. And the universe, this, our true, this true source of our being, she, if we want to give her agenda, she can, can start to move into your life when you're not so busy. You know, her problem is everybody's too busy. It's like even the spiritual people are too busy. They're too busy doing this, and too busy doing that, and too busy growing, and too busy, too busy with their own agendas. And I, I sometimes imagine her, the universe, the energy that is, looking for someone who's not doing anything. Going, ah, there's somebody. There's a body I can inhabit. Because that one's free. That one's available. So I always uh, I like to say, spiritually speaking, this, the state that I think we want to strive for, work toward, practice for, is availability. You know, it's, it's this place where we're ready to be taken. You know, not, not doing whatever it is we think we're doing, but ready to be taken by, as you said, the, uh, a higher impulse. That that's there, ready to flow through as soon as we're available. Love that, love that. Thank you for that. Let's talk about the uh, the evolution of the the teacher. I think it's a really fascinating subject. Um, you know Samuel Bonder. Uh, was, I do. He was, he was our last guest, my last guest, he and his wife, and he's been around the scene for a long time. So we were kind of getting to the subject. So it feels to me like, so you're, 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 do you call yourself a teacher? I mean, you're, you're teaching about. I, I try to be very limited in my definition of teacher. Uh -huh. I definitely, I definitely teach meditation and I teach spiritual philosophy and I kind of like to leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. Well, that, that's, that's kind of what I've seen is for myself too. Like I call myself a coach and I've kind of distanced myself from the, the phrase spiritual teacher and, which on one hand, it's like, well, it's just a simple term. You're teaching about spirituality, but it's become this loaded thing connected to the guru and all this sort of stuff. So, um, so that's the question. It's like, there's this evolution of people who are sharing about spirituality awakening now. And like, what, what, what have you noticed? And, you know, what do you, what do you feel is the best way to uh, bring these truths to people? Um, my sense in the general scene um, is that when I was first, uh, a spiritual seeker exploring and it was you know the guru and there was this this that was kind of you know those are the people I was looking at and that's really shifted uh quite a bit now and it's kind of moving into a different place and just wanted you to you know talk about, I know you had experience with Andrew Cohen and the, the community there for for quite a while and just what what have you seen and what do you see now and wh where is it going and what do you think what do you what do you think is a good place for it to be going and right so forth. well here's what I think I think it's a complicated topic yeah. <laughs> and, and it's complicated because there isn't a one size fits all uh, idea because so the traditional guru, you know, is the person you surrender to. And, you know, uh, given I've had experience, I was, I was, uh, I think I was as surrendered to my guru, uh, you know, who I considered my guru at the time as you could be, uh, I, I didn't hold anything back in terms of my complete devotion. Uh, and 
there were many ways that that served me. Uh, and I think there's certain places along the path, certain times along the path where one needs to let go in that way uh, to, you know, because the, the relief is, oh, you know, I can, I can just serve, I can just let go. And it's, and that can be very helpful at some point. I think, I think it's helpful, you know, there's a limited space along the path where that's profoundly helpful and that it can quickly turn sour. And also it's, you know, I, I would never want to call myself a guru or, or imagine myself in that role. That's like, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. Uh, It's just, it's, it's such a hard role to play. I, I have met people who seem to do it well. Uh, I've met a lot more people who have run into problems. Uh, the problems almost seem in, in, inevitable, uh, but there are places on the path, you know, where it's valuable. There was, there was a place for me where it was valuable. There's a place for other people where it's valuable. I think what's interesting today, which makes what makes this an interesting question, is there are a lot of people like you and I. Right. That's uh, what I'm. That's what I'm pointing at. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so okay. So then you're talking about a different section the different place on the path these and this is mostly people that i work with mm-hmm. uh, people who've been on the path for for decades years you know years at least decades in some cases uh, and have had powerful realizations and you know if they had been around in the 60s probably would be you know teachers and gurus because yeah. there wasn't anybody else around who knew yeah. you know yeah. but of, but now uh, <clears throat> there are a lot of those people around at least at a certain you know not as a percentage of the population, but, but as a percentage compared to decades ago, there's a lot more. Um, and so what I'm interested in is, is how, you know, because what do I bring to the picture? You know, I have my realizations, I have my teachings, and they're, they're actually pretty good. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pretty good teacher, and I think what I have to share is, is pretty amazing for the right people, not for everybody. It doesn't resonate with everybody. Uh, and I want to teach to the people that it's right for. And I feel like they're, they're coming to me. They're hitting me at that moment where I'm what they need. And that's when the magic happens. You know, teaching is a two-way street. It's, it's when what I have to give meets what, what a person actually needs. And then it explodes. And that's, I, that's the only place I want to teach. You know, so, but what else I bring is years, decades of experience. Uh, and in my case, uh, a, a certain amount of convening power. You know, I, I met a lot of people and I've garnered a lot of goodwill over the years. And, uh, and so what I'm, the thing that I think I'm most excited about is, is the membership program that I run. Because, you know, I feel like in that, which are the people who are most kind of devoted to working together and most devoted to working to me. But in that context, interestingly enough, is where I want to, I want to be. I want to promote other people to teach. Uh, I had this phenomenal experience literally a month ago, where someone who is new to that membership was taking a course by one of the other members, so not me, and they wrote to me because you know clearly I'm the person who's convening this space and and uh, and told me how much she was appreciating being part of the community and everything she was learning, and she mentioned this other teacher by name said, I've been taking their course because they do a weekly course as in the membership. And, and I can see they're going to be a very important teacher to me. 
And I thought, ooh, that's really cool because the, the other people in this community are beginning to be recognized as teachers in their own right. Uh, and I'm, I'm wanting that that becomes, now look, that's not what everybody wants. It's not everybody's destiny. I don't put any pressure on people to teach. You know, that's, it's a great thing to do if you're into it, I'm into it, <laughs> you're into it, but it's not everybody's bag, uh, which, which is fine. But what I love is creating the space that allows other people's gifts to shine, that allows them to step into that role in an, in an environment that's being, you know, somewhat supported to be as, as healthy uh, and as nurturing for everybody, both the people teaching and the students. You know, and so what I'm interested in is a kind of a co-learning community at the when we're, when learning when we're talking about learning as awakening and enlightenment, uh, and 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 that really thrills me. And I think that's there's a certain edge, you know. Like I was saying, people like you and I, right? We've had the teachers, we've done the thing, we've you know all kinds of stuff, uh, and now there's something different that wants to happen in community together you know, in some kind of networked, integrated uh, series of relationships. So that then the aggregate of, of all the experiences that people have learned from can start to inform the whole. Uh, and that's very exciting to me. Yeah, so I think one thing that I, that I see that's happening is the, te- the kind of the, the, hum- the humanization of the teacher which I think is a really great, a great thing. Um, Cause I think there used to be just kind of like the teacher's not really human or he's he or she, mostly he is like, you know, there's something, it created this kind of division and separation, um, which is ironic because the whole thing is about transcending division and separation. So I feel now the communities that I, that I'm connected to, that I'm a part of, it's more like, Hey, we're all human beings. And one person may have more of a, a revelation of the spiritual awakening another person and they can help them and, you know, talk to them and meditate with them and, and be of support, but they're both equal human beings. And maybe the other person's better at math or better at, you know, building houses or something. Um, so I think that's, that's a great shift that's happened. And then I, I recall um, you talking a bit about having experiences or doing experiments with, groups of people being in a shared awakened conscious at the same time. And that seems to me like that's, that's what it's all about. Even talking about now, I'm excited. You know, I think that's, that's kind of the next level. I'd love to talk, hear you talk about the experiences you've had with that or where you see that going or what's possible there. Oh, looks like you're on mute again. I mute myself to be quiet while you're speaking, but then I have to remember to unmute. Uh, let me say something first about the humanization of the teachers. Um, yes. Because I think that is very important. Uh, I've been blessed with being so obviously human that <laughs> people don't tend to mistake me for divine. But anyway, that's my lucky uh, charm. But I think, you know, I think it's what's tricky in there is on the one hand, absolutely. You know, having, having been part of a cultural context in which the guru was seen as infallible, uh, and then seeing where, where that can go really wrong. I'm all on board for the humanization of the teachers. And at the same time, I'm aware that we 
don't want to uh, throw the baby out with the bathwater, in a sense, by not venerating the source. You know, so so the thing that the, the thing that we were supposed to be devoted to and honoring and and surrendering our lives to wasn't the teacher; it was the source. And ideally, they were a reflection of the source, which is which is why all of that devotion and all of that surrender was kind of pointed in their direction. Uh, I guess what's tricky and why I, I, I wouldn't recommend being a guru to anybody as a career path is it's very difficult for people who are experiencing that source through what appears to be through the actions of a person, not to conflate the two. You know, and to think the person is the source. Uh, and if you've got a lot of people around you doing that, it's very difficult for the person who's playing that role not to think not of to themselves believe that it. way. That's you what know? happens, yeah. <laughs> it's very tricky. Um, and you know, if you're a person who sort of wants that anyway, it's even worse. Uh, but I think even for, even for very pure souls, I mean, you have to be a very pure soul, I think. Uh, and there have been those on the planet, uh, but I think it's rare that people are that pure um, in terms of the collective awakening. I mean, this is a very interesting topic as well. You, you hit all the big ones. Yeah. Uh, so well, I, know, I know you've been at the center of this. So you're a great person to talk to about this. You know, you've been at the center of this kind of guru centric spirituality to now we're moving into something else. And I think the community that you were a part of was kind of a big part of what this shift big part of creating this shift that's happened absolutely you know because mm -hmm. because it was a very top-down guru centered model during the time that i was there mm -hmm. and as i said i had i benefited in many ways lots of people benefited from it in many ways i was damaged in certain ways everybody else was damaged in certain ways you know depending on the person the damage outweighed the the benefit or vice versa uh but in the end it just proves to be not a long-term solution, uh, you know, even if it has a certain value at a certain point. Um, but also we were into collective awakening uh, right. and you know, this was in the early nineties, you know, and, and this was an amazing, uh, you know, this wasn't something people were doing. There wasn't that much around about this. And we worked at it really intensely. Um, We'll have to have a lot longer time before I can go through the ins and outs of the intensities. Uh, but the result was, uh, at least in terms of what I participated in, there was a retreat, a, a two-month-long retreat, in which an enormous amount of pressure was put on the participants. You know, so you say two months. Two months, yes. Wow, that's a long retreat. And not only was it two months, but okay, so this is this this is part of the ways that my teacher would work. You know. This was a, a two month long retreat, but we didn't know actually how long it was gonna be because the, the ground rules set were, you'll be on retreat until something happens that I recognize is what was supposed to happen. <laughs> you know, until the miracle happens, you're on retreat. Uh, and so we all thought it was originally gonna be a month and then a month went by and then I couldn't get any more time off work. So in between sessions on retreat, I was calling my, my uh, workplace at the time to tell them I wasn't gonna be continuing because uh, I didn't know how long this was going to go on for it. And it ended up being two months. The point is when you put that much pressure in a, in a situation. So like, for instance, I was giving up a, 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 
pretty good career, you know, and I was going to have to deal with the karma of that later. Uh, and so I wasn't going to, I was going to give everything to the practice and to what we were doing. You know, that, that, at least for me, that's how the pressure manifested is I just want, I just wasn't going to give myself a second to relax. I was going to do that practice with all my heart. The result was an experience of collective awakening in which the best way that I, I can describe it is a group of people that opened up to a source bigger than any of us. And it was, we would at me, night after night get together and this energy would take over. Uh, and what it felt like was that something was talking through you, that suddenly you'd feel an energy that wanted to express itself and it would bubble up through your mouth as words, words that you didn't know what they were going to be until they started coming out of your mouth. <clears throat> and then they would come out and then you'd see someone else and something would be coming out of them in response. And you could see that it was one energy that was speaking through every voice. And it was using the experience in the room to guide some kind of a inquiry together. So it was, it was saying, okay, now I need to hear from you because you've got this experience. And now I need to hear from that person because they've got that. And something seemed to be orchestrating the perfect uh, verbal dance between the participants. And you, on all, all I was doing was letting go and just letting myself be overcome uh, by this energy. And and I can say I've had a lot of spiritual experience. I had a lot of spiritual experiences on that retreat. Many of them were life-changing, you know, and in some ways it was the culmination of all of them. But if I had to pick one, it would be this one, you know, that, that this experience, which lasted for about a, a good solid month of that two month retreat and then lingered for months afterwards, which also, uh, yeah, I would say that that changed my life more dramatically than any other single event, single experience, because I realized that, that what was possible was that we could allow, we could allow ourselves to be inhabited by a higher source and that and that it that higher source would would work through all of us in ways that that were miraculous and couldn't possibly be attained by isolated individuals trying to work together yeah that's uh that's 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 powerful i mean it to me, it's like the answer to our problems. I mean, if we could imagine if our Congress talked to each other that way, or, you know, different, uh, the president, the prime minister here and here talk to each other, you know, got in this kind of space together, um, it'd be a whole different planet that we're, that we're living on. Um, are you, how, how do we facilitate a space like this to, I mean, I was thinking like, that's actually not, in a way, that's the intention of this podcast, because my idea was like, let's just come together with like, you know, brilliant people and just be present and not have this scripted thing of, you know, but just really see what is alive. And like, I love how you said, like, it, it kind of speaks through me when it's, when it's here, you know, mm -hmm. like that's, that's my, that's my intention for my conversations with everybody, you know, of course it's not often that way, but, um, but how do we facilitate that space for conversation to, to come from that place together? 
Well, it's, it's really good because, you know, I, I've worked, because after that experience, I started teaching, uh, flying all over the world, leading groups. And, and there were a bunch of us that were doing that. Uh, from what was that community. called at the time? It was called Enlightened Communication. Okay. Uh, and the groups were incredibly powerful. You know, the, I mean, the, the, you know, the, the, the facilitators that, that were working uh, toward it, which, of which I was one, we were actually good at facilitating a variation. You know, may not be quite as powerful as if you were on retreat for two months, you know, but it was powerful. It was enough that people were lit up by it. But after a few years, what you saw was uh, people were more interested in the experience of it than in the implications of it or the potential of it. You know, so they, we would do these once a week in some places and people would want to come back every week to have another hit of this collective awakening. But you realize that something wasn't clicking in terms of what this really means about who we yeah. are and how we should be. Uh, I just want to say, I, th I think this is, this is a major problem of the spiritual path in general, right? This kind of getting addicted to the spiritual experience and wanting to try to, you know, have this experience and, 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 and you kind of lose the sense of the, the path to the realization of who you really are. And then. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, it's uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, the, the, Buddhist teacher uh, from a few decades ago, he called it spiritual materialism. Uh, basically, it, it's any way in which we want to get something out of this. You know, we want to get an experience or we want to get an insight or we want to get knowledge or we want to get a better life. It's a materialistic relationship to something that ultimately doesn't give you those things. Uh, so yes, this is a problem on the spiritual path in general. I often say, um, People don't, for instance, because freedom is a big metaphor that I use, spiritual freedom, I, I speak about. And I say, well, most people don't actually want to be free. They just want to feel free. <laughs> you know, and so, and, and when they feel free, generally, when we feel free, we are free. You know, but I always say, well, that's easy. Anybody can be free when they feel free. You know, it's, it's a lot harder to be free when you when you feel totally bound up and constricted. <laughs> no. But if you only if you can only be free when you feel free, then you're totally not free. You know, that's but it's very hard for people to get what that would mean. What do you mean? Uh, and, and, you know, the other thing is. People don't want to be free. They want to see themselves free. They want to know that they're free. You know, they, they want to get some kind of uh, insight about their freedom. So yes, in general, it's, it's an issue. And then I found in the collective work, it's, it's the same problem. And then I taught in other contexts, collective work, but I, I started to get, well, I get disillusioned with teaching it where the experience of coming together was the focus because that seemed to me to be very ripe for making the whole thing about an experience you know and then it can become just about an experience that individuals have are having or being together which is not quite the same as what i experienced as something bigger than all of us animating our our bodies you know which it didn't feel like being together. It just, it felt like not being there at all. <laughs> it felt yeah, like, I get it it yeah. felt like being used. Um, 
And so at least the direction that I've gone in my work in terms of this community and now fostering people's, I just feel like I want to, I want to, I want to put, I want to create a, a context for community for people to be a part of. I want to empower people and, and nurture and, and create as, as empowering, as nurturing, as supportive, as safe, as healthy an environment as is possible to allow people to blossom into their highest realization. And my belief is that uh, that collective awakening sense will be a natural outcome of having the right kind of environment with the right kind of people all being empowered uh, and supported. And, and we can, I, I think it, I'm thinking it will be more effective to go into the collective experience kind of back through the back way. Yeah. Uh, and emphasizing uh, everyone's kind of individual uh, flowering, uh, putting that more in the forefront and then letting the flowers come together in the garden and see what the garden ends up looking like in the end. Beautiful. Um, you have a uh, five, what would we call these? There is on your website, there's these five different um, aspects of your teaching. Mm. I suppose it is. Um, we can potentially touch on all of them, but I wanted to talk about the paradigm shifting Yes. Um, and have you speak about that a little bit? And um, what what is I'm really fascinated by where where science is going, or what, what, where things are at as this awakening comes into being, and how science is going to be revolutionized uh, with this awakening. So somehow right. somehow you're, I know there's some things about science in here as well. So anything you want to tie in? Well, you know, I just wrote a small book called "The Spiritual Implications of Quantum Physics." Okay, perfect. Uh, because I, I was a physicist, you know, and yeah. originally I studied physics and then was an engineer. Uh, and really my, you know, one of my early spiritual experiences, although I didn't have that terminology at the time, was reading Thomas Kuhn's uh, book, yes. Structures of... Uh, I, didn't, I, didn't, I haven't read that, but you have that listed here. That's the first sentence. It's, and, and, you know, that just blew my mind. Uh, and... You know, basically, and I'll just very briefly, he's, he goes to the history of science because he was a historian of science. And he said, look, we have this idea about science that it's the gradual but steady accumulation of knowledge about the way things are, right? And he said, that's a myth. It doesn't actually exist. Uh, the actual history of science is there's a steady gradual accumulation of knowledge heading in this direction and then there's some massive shift in the way everybody's thinking and suddenly it's all going in this direction. And, and he said, you know, if you look at the science of, you know, for instance, the middle ages, it has nothing to do with the science that came next. Mm. It's not like there was a progression of one to the other. Uh, it's just something different happened. The, the, the fundamental assumptions about what's real changed. And so the nature of science changed. Uh, and, you know, I love a scientist named um, Mach, Ernst Mach. He was the one who, who came, the idea of like planes that go Mach 1, Mach 2, that's mm -hmm. that, that him. So he was a big physicist, uh, I think late 1800s. 
and in Vienna, they decided they wanted to make a physicist the chair of philosophy because uh, you know science was the best, so they wanted philosophy to be this philosophy of science. But he had a very radical view that I find fascinating. He just he thought that scientists should never try to speculate about the reality of what's behind their measurements and their experiments. You know, they, in other words, so for instance, you know, at that time, the, there was a big debate about the atom. And he was saying, look, nobody's ever seen an atom. There's no way to know an atom exists. We shouldn't even speculate that there are such things. All we actually know is that we're getting these results. We should use those results to the better, for the betterment of humanity uh, without needing to speculate, to make metaphysical speculations about what the reality must be beneath those. And his reasoning for that was interesting. He said, to the extent that we do that, what we end up doing is wedding ourselves to ideas about reality, which will inevitably prove not to be true. Uh, and then there'll be a whole generation of scientists that are so wedded to a model of reality underneath science that they won't be able to accept the next revolution in science. And scientists will have to, and Max Planck said this a little later, you know, revolutions in science happen when all the old scientists die off so that all the new scientists can go in a different direction. And I guess that's, you know, in terms of paradigm shifting, we are so deeply, our experience of reality is so deeply shaped by underlying largely unconscious assumptions about the way things are. Uh, that as you start, and this is, this is the part of philosophy I love, as you start to uncover and question some of your most fundamental assumptions about the way reality is and how it works, you realize that you actually don't know how reality works. You don't actually know what's, all you know is what your experience is. And then you have a lot of theories, which is kind of like science. You have a lot of theories about the way things are. And some of those theories, everybody you, you ever meet believes in them. So that's the ones we say, okay, that those are real until it's not until something happens. And, and clearly that's not possible. And that's why quantum physics is such a great example because there were experimental results back in the 19 teens and 1920s that have been duplicated hundreds, if not thousands of times, nobody doubts the result, but they point to a completely different reality than the one that we walk around with that we live with. Uh, and it's interesting to wonder how long it's gonna take for our perception of reality to be influenced by what we now know uh, about reality uh, in terms of the, the quantum realizations. So that's a little bit about, about what a paradigm shift as the underlying assumptions that shape not just the way we think about reality, but our actual perception. This is what I, I really, find mind-blowing we think we perceive reality the way reality is but we don't we perceive reality the way we've been conditioned to perceive it uh and and then we you know there's just and there are aspects of our perception you know a, a paradigm is like this closed loop you're you you're conditioning yourself to perceive things a certain way and then you're saying because you're perceiving them that way that must be the way they are and so it's very hard to get out of that loop uh, but when you do, it's, it's mind-blowing and spiritual experiences blow you out of your paradigm because suddenly, for instance, in, in, I mentioned this, but there was a very powerful experience on that retreat where every night I go to sleep, every night I see myself go into complete 
blackness. Every night I'd see dreams appear and disappear and then I'd go back into blackness. Then I'd see my body wake up in the morning. Then I'd be standing up, but I wouldn't lose consciousness all night. And it would happen, it would happen for three nights in a row. I couldn't, I forgot how to go to sleep and lose consciousness. I just watched my mind and body sleep, but I was somewhere outside of my mind and body. So, you know, an experience like that, it just blows the paradigm away. The paradigm, which is I'm somehow a person in this body, uh, just, it ended, you know, in, in, in that kind of experience. And, and the idea that I would die ended because I saw, I, I'm not even, I'm not really in that body. I'm not, I'm, I'm an awareness that exists beyond the body and beyond the mind. Uh, and when the body and the mind are gone, the awareness that I am will still be here. It always has been here. And I felt a complete emotional release from the fear of death because it, it was clear to me that, that what I am, you know, as the Buddha said, it's deathless. It, it, was never, it was never born and it will never die. Yeah, beautiful. One of the things with quantum physics is that there's this, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's this re realization that the observer and the observed are one, that they're not two separate <clears throat> things. And the, observe, the observer by their act of observation is shifting what's being observed and what's being observed is shifting what's, what, what, what the observer is. So how does that, how does that change science? Like how does that change science as we know it or understand it, where, what is the new science, so to speak? Yeah, well, I think that that's that's a that's the million dollar question. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how long it's going to take to answer that question. You know, it's tricky with these things. Um, I, I say this in the book that I wrote because you the the results of quantum physics are very good at telling us what we currently believe that can't possibly be true. Mm -hmm. They're not as good at telling us what actually is true. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, because you can speculate and lots of people do speculate, but it's pretty speculative. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's just a few results and, and they certainly imply that, as you're saying, you know, so, so the famous one is the double slit experiment. If you've got two slits and, and uh, uh, light goes through it, it acts like a wave. If there's one slit, it acts like a particle. Okay. Now, if there's... If, if, you, if you know the other slit exists, then it acts like a wave. If you don't know the other slit exists, if you don't have something looking at the other slit, then it acts like a particle. So it all gets very weird because somehow the, there's some way that the observation or the knowledge is affecting what happens. So this is what you're saying. And, and you can't speculate too far about what that means, especially at the macro level of people. But it certainly tells us that at the most fundamental level of reality, uh, the idea, and, and then it starts to make sense anyway, when you think about it, the idea that there could be an observer separate from the observed kind of breaks down. And then you start thinking, well, that sort of makes sense because we must all be part of the same one universe. You know? <laughs> so it, it sort of makes sense that ultimately everything's affecting everything else. Uh, and I think, you know, there's, There's some work being done in that, in that direction and, and lots of physicists, including people like David Bohm, uh, did amazing work. Uh, but it seems like it's gonna take a long time uh, for that to result in a complete overthrow of science. Uh, 
largely because most of the practical uses of science work really well with classical science. You don't need quantum physics for most things. So, uh, and the quantum, the quantum world doesn't affect the macro level at, at, at which we observe. So, so I don't know, I'm excited about the idea of what science will be in the future. Um, it will probably be very unrecognizable as science. Uh, it may be something that's more of a blend of, uh, of things that we're currently calling spirituality and metaphysics and the paranormal. And, you know, all these things may start to meld together into some more holistic understanding of a multidimensional reality. Uh, mm -hmm. That's what I, I write fiction about these things because oh. that's the safest. It's the safest place to speculate. I gotta check that out. What <laughs> what are the what's uh, what are some uh, fiction books you have that touch on these? Uh, well, I have uh, uh, I've written a, a number of fiction books. So there's one called um, uh, Transdimensional Awakening uh, and Transdimensional. Uh, crossing was the first one. The second one, I'm just about to release Transdimensional Awakening. And that's very much about the fact that we live in a multidimensional reality, that we've, we're trained to see reality as in kind of the three dimensions that we've seen. But actually, there's this constant influx of other dimensions. We don't, we just don't recognize it as such. It's, it's always happening. Sometimes we see things as coincidences, or we see them as just weird aberrations, or we've just learned to not see them at all. Uh, uh, and, but the dimensions that our five senses see very easily are constantly being uh, influenced. You know, there's, uh, there's entities, things from, uh, from, from of higher dimensionality constantly moving in and out of our normal dimensional space. And that's what I think spiritual experiences are. Uh, Spiritual experiences are where suddenly you get a glimpse of, of uh, other dimensions of reality, dimensions beyond the ones that our five senses happen to be attuned to. So that's an example. I've written a book called Dreamed Awake, which is really about the power of dreaming and lucid dreaming. Uh, so I'm having a lot of fun with those. And then I, I have a series starting with a book called Eternity, which is basically about my experience in spiritual community with lots of fictional uh, Elements. What's that one called again? It's called Eternity. Eternity, uh, okay. And I, I, I wanted to have a way to write about what happened in, in community that would allow me to share both the miracles and the insanity uh, and mix it in with lots of fictional elements so it would be very hard to pin anybody down. Uh, and, and it worked because it was very fun for me. And I continued, I, I want to continue to write more of those. Uh, and it allowed me to revisit and to rethink experiences I had in community. Uh, gave me a safe place to do that. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, so, so anyway, that's been fun for me because at some point I started to feel like fiction is a very powerful vehicle. Uh, Richard Rorty is an American philosopher. He died, but he was an American philosopher. Uh, and in the end, he, he would write about how philosophy is really a form of literature. Philosophy is really a story about the way things are. Uh, and 
often the philosophy that gets adopted and believed as true is may or may not be the most true in some objective sense, but it's the one that as a story, as literature captures the most imaginations. Uh, and he started to feel that, you know, we should look at all literature for its potential to shape the way we think about what's real. Uh, and because there are forms of literature that he felt were even more powerful than discursive, discursive, you know, philosophical treatises. Uh, and even though philosophers may be spending a lot of time reading those, most people aren't. You know, most people are, are learning about how reality is from much more mainstream sources. Uh, and he, I think, wanted us to start to introduce into the mainstream popular, entertaining um, sources of literature that would really have a profound message. So I was inspired by that to start writing fiction, essentially. You're leading me into one of my one of my deepest inquiries, which is: Is there any such thing as a true story, or is there any such thing as an objective reality? I have a personal opinion about that. I love to hear your personal opinion, right? Because if I say no, there's no such thing as an objective reality, then that would be an objective reality. <laughs> so true. This is, this is that question you can't true. answer. But my opinion and my belief is. My belief is twofold. Well, I guess the biggest belief is I don't know, and I don't think anybody's ever going to know. Mm. <laughs> you know, uh, I think it's a really important. I think it's the most important question to ask, though, uh, and it's important to realize that uh, how would you know? You know, how would you know if something was objectively real? You know, and the whole the whole idea of objective reality is kind of a myth. You know, now in theory. I kind of believe that there's something real somewhere. <laughs> you know? I don't know what it is, but I kind of believe there's something. I also believe that I'll, I'll never know what it is uh, or probably I'll never know. And if I did, even if I did know, I wouldn't know how to know that I knew, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's very complicated. Um, what I think, I'm a pragmatist by heart. So uh, pragmatism was an American philosophy, which essentially Richard Rorty is, is in that, loosely in that category. But the basic idea is we sh rather than judge the validity of an idea by how well it corresponds with some idea we have of reality. Because this is the big postmodern uh, realization, which is we always thought that there was an objective reality, which meant we had we could have ideas, which we call facts, which are a direct reflection of reality somewhere. And then we realized, oh, but even our ideas about reality are themselves ideas. So we're taking one set of ideas, reflecting them to another set of ideas, calling these ideas reality, and therefore these are facts. Uh, but there's there's no, we don't know what's objective or if there's anything objective. Uh, so in, in pragmatism, the idea basically was, rather than trying to find the validity of an idea by connecting it to something that we see as real, we should look at ideas uh, and judge their validity based on, on some criteria about the goodness that idea brings to life. Uh, and when Richard Rorty wrote about this, he talked about, um, uh, 
solidarity that that what would be interesting an interesting experiment you know if you could do this if you had one world where the idea of truth was an idea that facts related to something that was absolutely true and then of course you can see the problems we ran into with that you have people of this religion have this idea about what's absolutely true and people of that religion have that idea they both feel perfectly justified to to, to destroy the other one uh, because they're so insanely wrong about what's true. He said, what if we got rid of that system and instead we implanted a philosophy where uh, what everybody was, was looking, what everyone called the truth meant it's the idea that brings the most people together in the most harmonious way. And what if you could run that experiment for 2000 years? What kind of planet would, would that definition of truth result in uh, and I find that fascinating and then you know if you're an objectivist you'll say yeah but how do you know that's true <laughs> and of course then you could always ask well how do you know the other is true and then you go back and forth but it's a great question uh, I've thought about it you know an enormous amount I've been captivated by the question of objective reality and the uh, <clears throat> the fact that it that I have a strong suspicion it doesn't really exist. Well, let me see if I can uh, tackle the question. And oh, let me please know do. What you think? Let me get your perceptions on it. So, to me, the objective reality would be the what you call like the nothingness or the emptiness or the void or the spaciousness, which is the inherent reality of everything and nothing. And then you can awaken to that reality, which to me, that's what you're talking about. And then you see that essence in everything. And it's, oh, that's because you're that essence. I'm that essence. So now we're coming in the trees, the essence and the clouds and the, you know, the rivers and so forth. So now we're all coming from this. We always were, but now we realize that there is the same essence that's here. And so now we're in the truth. Um, living from, the, you know, re living from this place of the truth. However, to me, then whatever story we make about that or whatever um, theories or whatever, then it's not objective reality. Now it's, now we're, now we're, you know, it's my particular angle or my particular vantage point on that. So it's kind of like, as soon as you bring words into it, essentially, or as soon as you bring ideas or as soon as you bring, um, do the world of duality into it uh you're bringing your 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 it's not objective anymore but then there is then there's truth in the sense of like i'm telling you something where i'm not trying to deceive you or i'm not trying to you know there's there's that it's coming from a place of purity inside so it's kind of like it's honest it's authentic but it's still just my particular vantage point it's not everyone doesn't see it the same way as i do necessarily right yeah that would be that that that's where i'm at with with looking at it no i mean it's right that's great you mm -hmm. know i guess what's what's tricky about any of these things mm -hmm. you know because eventually what 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 tends to happen is you just burn yourself out from mm -hmm. asking the question yeah but you know because because what's tricky is everything becomes an idea in the end mm -hmm. so even the idea of emptiness is an idea mm -hmm. um and and if you're going to talk you have to use ideas that's 
you know, sort of why a teacher like Ramana Maharshi <laughs> supposedly just sat and didn't say anything. And people will sometimes ask me, why don't you sit and do nothing? And, <laughs> and I think, well, I don't know, in some ways it would be a perfect reflection of the truth, but I don't know if anybody would listen to that either. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky. And, and, you know, in some ways what you're describing is what uh, the German philosopher Immanuel Kant said that there's the real reality is something he called the noumena, mm-hmm. and the noumena is is the unknowable, yeah. undifferentiable, who knows whatness <laughs> yeah. underneath, and then everything else is phenomena, and mm-hmm. phenomena are are always going to be subject to certain rules and laws, and will never be a perfect reflection of the of the the noumena underneath, which is always unknowable and un, undifferentiated. My experience tells me that's true, right? Because you, my experience of just being blown out of knowing anything, uh, the only thing that, that you, you're left with or come back with is knowing that that was the truest thing there is, <laughs> you know, that's, but what exactly does that mean? Who knows, you know? Uh, you know, because you said before we get on today that you're really interested in in awakening as it's lived in the world, right? Um, right. So awakening as you can live it if you just somehow manage to stay in a blown out state forever, you know, um, is one thing. But as soon as you want to interact, by the very nature of interaction, the you're stepping into, like you said, distinctions and and ways of understanding and, and even if they're ways of understanding that which you experienced in the pristine emptiness there's still ways of understanding that uh, yep. and so it gets it, it makes your head boggle you know it's it, it, it's i don't know that it's a problem it's just kind of seems to be the nature of it yeah well it's it's like that's kind of the, the, the paradox was so you know kind of fun and funny about this whole path is you start off all about wanting to know, wanting to accumulate some kind of knowledge. And then at the end, it's, it's about not knowing about <laughs> being blown up into knowing nothing. Right. Uh, and kind of living from that, not knowing. Right. So, right. so it's kind of like that when you're talking about that collective awakening, it sounds like you all were in this space where it's like, just what's the word there's, 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 you don't know anything and yet something's coming through. And then it disappears and it's coming through and, you know, there's a thought and then there's no thought like that's to me, that's the awakened, that's the awakened conscious. So there's still this kind of, um, uh, relative truth that yes. comes through, but it's not the absolute truth, but it's coming from the absolute truth. So I think, I think what comes from this, one thing we could say comes from this is just a lot of humility, you know, yes. And I don't mean, I don't mean, I don't mean humility of like, you know, people think of that word sometimes is like, oh, I'm less than everyone else, or I'm, I don't mean that. I just mean this kind of open, just real openness, like you said, like availability to, to the moment. Definitely, absolutely. And, and, and not knowing, actually knowing that you don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, you know, and, and what's interesting is we all know a lot, and especially, you know, our culture tends to train us to be knowers, so we know a lot. Uh, but there is a way that underneath it all, as, even though you know all kinds of things, and we all do, underneath it all, you know all of it's suspect. Right. You know, you, you know that at any minute the rug could get pulled out from under you. And this is the great. I always 
uh, say of myself that I was like a special, I was a special needs teacher in, in reality also. But I also, I often say I was kind of a special needs spiritual seeker, you know, because I lived in an intensive spiritual environment for 20 years. And I, honest to God, like halfway through that, I'd had so many experiences and they were mind blowers. You know, I mean, they were not small ones. They were the big ones people want. And I would read books by these great spiritual masters, you know, a lot of the modern masters. And I, and I would think, you know, I've had more experiences than they had. I must be terrible at this. You know? <laughs> yes, I'm not enlightened. <laughs> I just keep having experiences and they're not, they're not working for me. Uh, and, and at some point in the end, and this gets back to your point, I was like 18 years into it. I was sitting down for my next retreat. And I was so earnest every retreat, every retreat. I was going to go further than before. I was going to give more. I was going to stay up later. I was going to, whatever it was going to take, you know, I would fast, I would eat, whatever was the experiment of the moment. And I sat down to, the, to meditate, the bell rang, and I just realized I didn't have the energy for it. I was like, I, I just cannot do this again. It was another 10-day retreat. I just can't do it. I've done so many of these, you know. And I thought, oh, I've lost my spiritual will. Like, I'm sunk now. And then I realized, no, that's not what happened. It, I just don't need any more experiences. I'm finally done mm. needing something to happen in order to be okay. I don't need to meditate my heart out in order to generate an experience, in order to prove something to myself, because I know. And I felt so much freedom, right? Then I, this is what freedom is. Freedom is, I don't need to know to know, you know, like I, 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 I already know. And so I don't need any proof. And that retreat from that point on, I, I realized after 18 years of living in a spiritual community, that was in a sense, the first time I had really meditated because I just sat and I just didn't care at all what happened. I didn't try to do anything. I wasn't trying to make anything happen. If, I, if, I, if my mind was busy fretting on a problem, that was equally fine to if I was you know, hearing angelic choruses in my head because it was all irrelevant. The only thing that mattered was being. And that was all I wanted was to be free. And I, and it was, it was a miracle. It was, <clears throat> and it was exactly not what I was expecting because I always thought there was going to be some experience that sort of blew me away and left me completely changed. But in the end, uh, what I experienced was just that I didn't need any more. I was done and I was available. And I, I realized this is what it means to be available. I'm not doing anything in meditation. I'm literally just here. Uh, and so when I teach meditation, I try and teach people just to do that. <laughs> like, yeah. like, I'll save you the 20 years you know, of intensive practice. Just be available now and, and, and end it because nothing, you know, as, 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 as valuable as those experiences were in a certain way, in the end, it's not really what it, it's not the point and it doesn't really matter. Uh, that's, that's kind of how it, how it, how it, strikes me now yeah it's just that wide open availability to the moment um space of not knowing exactly presence yes presence. absolutely yeah absolutely and then being able to bring that right from the meditation into conversation into 
playing with your kids or your wife or your husband or your job or exactly and what's interesting about that is um i i I often tell people you know don't necessarily even think about it as bringing it because that kind of gives you a role but I, i usually say you know when you're doing your practice whatever that practice might be do it with all your heart and and reap the benefits of pure freedom and sink in it, wallow in it, you know, bathe in it. Uh, and then when you're, when you're with your kids or you're, or you're at your job, you don't think about it. You know, if the benefits of your deep peace in practice will naturally show up in your life. And anytime you're trying to bring those to life, there's always got to be this question of who is the person who thinks they need to be the carrier of these uh, versus give yourself wholeheartedly to your practice, to your study, you know, to your spiritual life, which in the end becomes your whole life, <laughs> you know, because then the time when you're with your kids becomes a spiritual practice not by trying to bring meditation to that activity, but by being present with that activity as perfectly and fully as you can be. Uh, and then in the end, there's just a life lived in complete presence. And, and that makes you totally available always. Beautiful. So Jeff, what are, you, what are you doing now? How can people connect with you and involve what you're I mean, doing? You know, the easiest way is you, you my website is jeffcarrera.com. Uh, and I have a couple of free courses on there and lots of resources, audios and videos and written things. And I've written lots of books, so I'm not, I'm not hard to find in written form. Uh, yeah, so if people go to jeffcarrera.com, they'll see everything that I'm up to, all the courses that I've done. Some are available as downloads. Others are on a calendar. Most everything right now is virtual. I hope at some point I'll actually be able to do a retreat somewhere in person again. I'm imagining that's coming fairly soon, but uh, still haven't quite figured it out yet. But that's that's the best way. Mm-hmm. And you're based in Philadelphia, you said, right? I am based in Philadelphia, although by and large, my work is virtual. So people can connect with mm-hmm. it from anywhere. Do you ever do anything in person there in the Philly area? I have. I've done retreats. Um, you know, for a while I was teaching locally at like a yoga center. Um, uh, I don't know if I'll go back to that or not, uh, but I will definitely be doing retreats. And there's a beautiful uh, Pendle Hill because you're a little familiar with Philly. There's a, a Quaker retreat center called Pendle Hill. It's a beautiful place. Uh, and that's where I've done retreats in, uh, in Philly and you know, just outside of Philly. And I'm sure I'll do them there again. So it's a fantastic place. Awesome. Well, this has been great, Jeff. I really enjoyed it. And uh, it was really fun, Brian. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for being here.